0: Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers and 24 offices across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me interview a different Foley attorney through our one-on-one candid conversations, you'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bio, stories of obstacles and triumphs, with some funny moments in between. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Vaityari Rodriguez. Vaityari is an associate in Foley's Miami office where she focuses on immigration law. In this discussion, Vaityari shares about growing up in Havana, Cuba, coming to the US at 17, and the ensuing culture shock. She also shares a really funny story about a part-time job she had shortly after coming to the US where I will fully admit, I was super close to losing my composure. Fortunately, I was able to maintain it and to then get Vitari to share about how she decided on college what made her decide she wanted to go to law school, and ultimately, how it was she ended up in the immigration group at Foley & Lardner. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hi, Vitari, Welcome to
1: the podcast. My pleasure to be here with you today. I'm very happy and excited about all the questions that you're going to ask me.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm looking forward to jumping in, but before we get into the particulars of your life, I like to have guests start by giving the professional introduction that they give or that you would give if you are at, say, a networking event and someone asks you, tell me about yourself.
1: Absolutely. I'm an immigration attorney at Foley and & and I do investment and business immigration mostly for companies, multinational companies and high net for individuals. So we are in charge of bringing their CEOs, their specialized knowledge workers, their management to the U.S. and establish new businesses, opening new companies, that type of business and investment immigration that's not very known in the U.S. is the other side of, of our immigration system, I would say.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. We're going to unpack that in a bit. And I'm actually going to ask if you can state your full name because I don't know that the listeners appreciate just how terrible my accent is. And I just really want people to know how to correctly pronounce your name because I don't have the ability to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So please. It's okay. I will pronounce in my best Cuban
1: accent my Tahitian name. It's uh, Vaitiari Rodriguez. Vaitiari, if you say it in, 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 like I say, Cuban Spanish. But no, you did a
0: great job. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, let's start at the beginning. You just mentioned Cuba or Cuban, but let's start with where did you grow up? Where were you raised?
1: I was born and raised in Havana, Cuba, and I moved to the States when I was 17 years old. Oh, my God. And I moved to California. I actually live a year in Orange County, and then I moved to Berkeley for undergrad and, and law school. So I would say I'm a Cuban by way of California, and then now, now I'm in Miami because all Cubans end up in Miami at some point in their life. And, you know, my family's here, and I wanted to feel, again, a little bit more connected and closer with Cuban culture in miami it's like a bit of north cuba i call it sometimes
0: north cuba that's really funny and i'm gonna take you back because you just explained what i think you just explained the last actually your entire life in about a minute or two so let's start with you came to the u.s at 17 and you were in havana before that what was it like growing up in havana Oh my God! It's very difficult
1: to explain, especially to any Americans, how it is to live in a communist country, because it's like living in an in another planet. I had to be honest. I had a, a happy childhood, but I think it was mainly because of my family, and I think they created sort of a protective bubble around me, so I wouldn't have to suffer and endure most of the hardships of communism. And they always make sure that, you know, whatever they taught you at school it's not the reality. There's books, there's ways to find that information so you can make up your own mind. So I was privileged in that sense that I had my family protecting you, but it's a different environment. Things that you give for granted in the States, like access to internet and information, being able to choose your own career, what are you going to be in the future? How many careers are you going to have? Are you going to be an attorney and, and and a doctor? Like we have some of our colleagues that are attorneys and doctors. And I think the main aspect that impacted me when I moved to the United States, it was freedom. I was just so free to choose who I wanted to be and how I was going to live my life. And I never felt that I had that freedom in Cuba
0: my life felt scripted. (laughs) There's so many things I want to ask about that. And I guess to just to pick one of them, do you have a sense of, say, had you stayed? Because you you were practically an adult at 17. You're closing it on 18, not far from 21. Do you know what you would have done professionally by chance had you stayed? Yes,
1: I was. Actually, I applied and I accepted to El Instituto Superior de Arte, which is an art school in Havana. And I was supposed to be studying film and TV production and and direction, that that sort of field. So very far from what I do right now as an attorney. It was a 360, 180 degree.
0: What caused you, and I'm guessing your family, why did you guys move? Well... It was basically just a family reunification case.
1: My family, most of it, left Cuba in the 1960s. So there was a very few of us left behind. And then my mom, she got sick. She got a a stroke. She's fine right now. But it was a very scary situation because I was in Cuba, I was 17 years old, I'm there practically alone with my mom, my neighbors are, you know, being my family because I don't have anybody around it, and I think at that point was when my family that was living in the States says, no, you have to come and live with us, and and then they file a petition, they were U.S. citizens, they file a petition for family reunification, and that's how I ended up in the in the United States.
0: And then what happens? You get here at 17. Oh my God. You know when you say when I tell people, you know like I,
1: I left Cuban when I was 17, the reaction that I get is your reaction like, oh you were an adult like, but I, f- I feel really. like ha- no really not, not, really, really, no, like, not I, really I was a child. I feel like my life could be divided into, it's like, Before I left Cuba and after I left Cuba. I always joke around and I say that I have two birthdays. My, you know, the day I was actually born and then the day I came to the United States, I sort of celebrated like another anniversary. What what was the date? Do you remember that date? What day was it? Oh, yes, absolutely. February 17, 2007.
0: Wow. Okay. Keep going, though. Keep going. You were describing about the significance of that. It's like your second birthday.
1: Yes. I mean, I I have, you know, memories of my childhood in Cuba. And of course, my, like I would say, big part, a significant part of my identity is I'm Cuban. But then I come to the States and I joke around and I say to people, like, if you send me back to Cuba right now, I, I wouldn't know how to live and be there because I only know how to be an American adult, quotation marks. Because this is how, you know, my friends, my family, the way that you interpret it and, and react to the world and society, as you know, it it's just very mainstream American. I mean, I was joking around the other day with with my partner. We were having dinner, and I think we were having like mashed potatoes and broccoli and something like very, very American. And it's like it's so funny because it's like I can't cook even food. <laughs> so this is what you're gonna
0: love. So I'm laughing because I had mashed potatoes and broccoli with my dinner last night. <laughs> there was a there was a protein present, but the sides were mashed potatoes and broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yes. Well, but what you were saying about coming over at 17, I, I think that's a really important reflection because I think when I hear that, it means you probably have a really strong memory. Uh, you know, 17, 18 is old enough to really remember something well. But I think for most of us who now find ourselves potentially in into your 30s, 40s, and beyond, you look back and you do realize that at 17, you were still a child. Yeah. Even though you didn't feel like a child at 17, and I know you mentioned this before, but remind me, when you did come to the U.S. at 17, where did you go?
1: Well, my family, they were probably the only Cubans in California. Um, California, when they, <laughs> they When they came from Cuba and they settled in Orange County. So I live in Orange County like around a year before I went away to college to Berkeley. So it was a, quite of a cultural shock. Because you're coming, you're going to California to a place that's, you know, very suburban, you know, very uh, middle class, upper middle class. In many ways, very American, too. And here I am, like the girl from Cuba just landed in Orange County, suburban. So it, it was a bit of a culture shock.
0: So from Havana, Cuba, straight to Orange County, California... I need, I actually want you to tell me more about the culture shock. Like I want some examples. Let's do this. Oh gosh. Let me, I mean, it's my life and I don't necessarily usually
1: analyze it like that. Of course not. Why would you? But I, for example, something very funny and this has to do with, you know, with Latin culture, like in Cuba. And I think it's, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think it would be the same. You wouldn't go out, for example, to the market if you were not dressed Like, you comb yourself, you're dressed very nicely, you smell good, like you're going to present your best self out to the world. And it was very funny that I was at the market and it was around Christmas time and I would see people with PJs at at the market. I was like, oh, these Americans, they're like very like laid back. So casual, Um, we're so casual. And then at some point too, I remember Havana, it's not a very multicultural society because Cuba has always been very, you know, close to the world. And I remember being again at a market, magical things happen at markets apparently. (laughs) And I was like shopping around and then this lady comes and he's like, oh, you're Greek, like your family is Greek. And she starts, you know, talking to me in, in Greek. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, I'm Cuban. I know Spanish. That's what I'm supposed to know. And then she's like, went away, you know, talking in Greek, like, you know, like my parents were not doing a good job or something because it was, they supposedly, they should have taught me Greek. So it was just things like that. And it was sort of like a, a funny introduction to another way of life. And And there's people from all over the world in the United States.
0: So yet you weren't used to being mistaken for a different ethnicity or heritage. Oh my God! Yes, all the time. What I have now—it's still different because I I obviously grew up. I grew up in the U.S., but I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up right outside Milwaukee, but I went to college in Washington D.C. And there's a lot more recent African immigrants in the D.C. area or on the East Coast than there are in the Midwest. And so when I first got to D.C., I would. Frequently, not just get asked, but get told that I was Ethiopian, told and spoken to in Amharic, and I could not respond. And the person was like, Why? What is wrong (laughs) with you? And eventually I would say, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm American. And I would get asked, well, where are your, where are your parents from? And I would say South Carolina. (laughs) And we just, you know, it was, but it was the first time that I'd experienced that. And so it's a bit different because you'd also just come straight from Cuba, but similar when someone tells you who you are or who you should be. And you're just like, no, that's not the case. Although I do want to ask, I know you mentioned, so you were in Orange County for a year before going to Berkeley. Were you in school for that year or had you essentially finished school in Cuba? No, I couldn't. I left Cuba and
1: I just finished high school. So that year was the year that I, when I came in, I'm not an immigration, I'm an immigration attorney. I can explain it. There's like the Cuban Adjustment Act. So at that, at that time, when you're a Cuban, you have certain privileges. And what they give you is they, they give you sort of like an asylum. Type of status. So you have your work permit, you have your social security, and then after the year you apply to adjust your status and become a permanent resident. And then after five years you can become a US citizen. So at that time, with my status of a uh, refugee as I I couldn't go to college because then I will not be able to apply for financial aid and get scholarships and will have to pay like international student type tuition that I couldn't afford at the moment. So I have to spend a year sort of in preparation to college, like, you know, applying to the universities, working so I could save money for college and like buy my first car and learning to drive, all that type of things.
0: And so that's what you did. You spent a year getting prepared Working in Orange County, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Can I ask where did you where did you work in that year? <laughs> Do you know when you go to Koska and there's a sample lady? Yes. I was one of them. <laughs> really? But
1: not a Costco. This was this market called Fresh and Easy. That It was an English, I think, uh, an English company called Tesco, if I recall correctly.
0: I think that, that rings a bell. That sounds yeah. right.
1: Tried to open a market in the US that sort of imitated Trader Joe's. But, you know, it was a great place to work. And I was a sample lady. I have to say that I was not a very good sample lady. I ate more of the samples than I gave away. And I was way too sincere because if people ask me like, oh, is this good? And it was not good. I was like, no, don't buy it.
0: Thing ever, I mean, you see my, you can see my face. I've tried so hard not to just laugh stare, at You <laughs> say I was not a good sample lady. No, no. <laughs> And meanwhile, someone's like, "Hey, can I have a sample?" And you're like, "No, don't. It's not good. <laughs> Get that one over there."
1: <laughs> that was basically me. So I was very polarizing. I had my following of like elderly ladies that will come and ask me questions because I was the honest one. Um, <laughs>
0: so, yes. Because you are trustworthy. This is amazing. I could take this podcast in an entirely different direction. <laughs> and It's taking a lot of willpower for me not to, but I am deeply grateful that I asked you that question and that you answered. Thank you so much. All right. So eventually you go to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on Berkeley or was it decided for you? I wouldn't say it
1: was decided for me, but I know that my success has always been built upon the shoulders of many, many people that helped me. Not only my personal desire to succeed and and how hard I work, there were many, many people around me. So a lot of people suggested that I try for Berkeley because, you know, in California, it's a very, you know, it has a tremendous reputation and they also Thought that it was going to be a good fit because, you know, it's such a diverse campus. I think they thought, like, you're going to get a quality education. You're going to get also, you're going to be educated in terms of, like, who you meet. You're going to meet so many people around you, diverse. You're going to feel, I think it was also, in a way, like, it's a safe environment for you to be. Since you're sort of new to the States, you go to a campus where there's many people that look like you, too. So I think that was part of the equation. Yeah,
0: I got to work it. (laughs) Did you know that you wanted to go on to law school that early on?
1: Oh, my God, no. (laughs) No, no, no. First, I, I was intending to be a business mayor, but, you know, it was just not for me. And then I did some, you know, soul searching and I realized that political science was something that I wanted to do. And I intended to pursue a career in political science because, I mean, growing up in Cuba, the word politics is like thrown around you. It's part of your life. You cannot separate it. So I thought, OK, this is going to be my opportunity to understand the power behind politics and to understand the history of politics and know, you know what international relations meant outside the Cuban universe or American politics, etc. So that's mainly why I decided to become a political science mayor. But then when I was in law school, I realized like, you know, pursuing a PhD was not for me. I was not interested. I remember that I realized I was always interested in doing human rights work and working with Cuba and and human rights, you know, improving human rights conditions in Cuba. And I realized that I, I needed to have a voice. And for some reason, I don't know why. Becoming an attorney and being a female attorney, someone who could understand how things work and, and, and the law, and that it's in and of itself a figure of authority that people could listen Absolutely. to. I think it drew me to the idea of, like, I want to become an attorney.
0: When was that? And it sounds like it was throughout college, but was there any sort of defining moment for you where you truly decided? Yes, there was this conference in in Berkeley
1: about uh, Cuba and human rights, and they invited a couple of professors and and people from the Cuban government. I personally disagree with the people they invited. I think they were representing the Cuban government and they weren't given a, a fair picture of what was happening in Cuba and they were overlooking the very real human rights violations that were happening. And that you know I think unbeknownst to the school, it was their best intention to provide a space for dialogue, but they were promoting. Well, what I would say were agents of the communist regime. And, and then I said to myself, I wish I could be able to like stand in that scenario and talk to people and that people would listen to me. And I think that idea clicked in my mind as I was seated listening to the conference and I was like, and the word attorney just like came in. It's like attorney. And then I did, you know, it's like, how do I become an attorney? Because this, you know, I have no idea. I knew how how you'll become an attorney in Cuba. But I don't know what it meant in the United States. Like, do do I need to apply to a different school after I'm done with my undergrad? What's the process? So at that point, I think I was in, I think I was a year away from finishing college when I had that, you know, revelation. And then, yeah, I decided to apply to law school.
0: And you figured it out. I do like what you just said about I knew how to be a lawyer or how to become a lawyer in Cuba, but I didn't know what the process was here in the States. And I think that's something that we often assume that everybody would just sort of know, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But the case is that people don't. And so I do like that you just took the moment to share that, that you had to then go be like, okay, what do I do now? How do I oh, become yeah, a lawyer? I
1: agree. It was an unknown for me. You know, I'm not the first person to go to, to university in my family. My parents are doctors. I'm, I'm lucky in that sense that they always... Uh, you know, instill the the importance of education. And I saw them, you know, I think I was very little when my dad was like finishing his residency and I would remember him with his big, you know, medical books. Like I grew up in an environment when education was something that you would seek. But then I'm here. I, la- I basically landed in the United States and I've done everything uh, on my own. It's like, how do I find a way to become an attorney? Because a lot of us don't know and, you know, thank God for internet. (laughs) I always tell people, like, when you don't know something, I mean, it's very basic, but just Google it. Think about the schools that you want to go, ask around, and, you know, never be afraid of going and asking to your professors. I mean, if people don't want to talk to you, okay, that's a no. You got to know for an answer, but most of the time, especially in that type of academic setting, people want to help you out.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's so true what you just said about we are now so fortunate that most of us in the U.S. have access to the internet and that you can just Google it. And often we forget just the power of information at our fingertips where you might think, oh, I need to go find a lawyer and ask a lawyer how they became a lawyer. But now you can just search it, mm-hmm. <laughs> just just search for it. And that might sound so obvious, but that actually comes up, I think, a lot in life where someone's like, but I didn't know how. And you're like, just Google email marketing yeah. or whatever it may be. Yeah.
1: And you know what? It was funny because the librarians at school were my friends. Sometimes it's like, I don't know how to do this. Can you please help me? And I don't know if they took pity on me because they they saw this like poor Cuban girl asking around. But, you know, you always have to be brave. You never be afraid to ask around and ask for help. And if it means that you have to be vulnerable and say, I don't know how to do it, you just have to. Someone's going to help you. Or even if somebody doesn't help you, you'll get there because you're pushing above and beyond what a lot of people do.
0: That's so powerful what you just said. There's no improving on that. And what I would like to do now is talk about the process of you deciding which law school and which law school you went to. But I did briefly first want to ask you, how was the college experience for you, given that you basically went from Cuba to college in California? How was that?
1: (laughs) So different. School's so different. In Cuba, there's a lot of emphasis and like, they basically give you like tons of books and you memorize and that's how you learn. And here again, I said, I had a lot of freedom and I have it also a lot of freedom in terms of like, how many classes do I want to take? How many degrees I want to pursue? I think at, at first it was a little bit intimidating because I mean, here I was, I was at Berkeley and everybody around me, I, will, I was always in awe of my classmates because People could be more laid back or less laid back, but they were all so brilliant. And it was like, I'm here seated with these people who are brilliant, who who I could say they know the system, they grew up in the States, they feel comfortable about it. But I think overall, it was a great experience because it told me how strong I could be because English was my second language. I mean, I've been studying English in Cuba ever since I was eight years old. So it was not that I came to the States without knowing how to, like, you know, read and write in English. So that was a plus for me. But I understood the the way I, I wrote in English an essay for class. It required more effort on my part than it would do for someone who's you know, English is their first language, for example. So it told me that I needed to work extra hard just to get to a level where probably my Classmates were very comfortable just by the fact of being born in the States. But I think it was very beneficial for me.
0: How did you pick law school and where did you go to law school?
1: I went to go to law school at Berkeley. So it was basically just like walking a couple more of like feet from my classes to the law school. I love my experience at Berkeley Law. But now, you know, with experience and in hindsight, I think I should have applied to more schools, especially schools in the East Coast. I think the only two schools that I applied in the East Coast was Georgetown because I love Washington, D.C. And I did get accepted. So it was a, it was a very tough choice. And Cornell, because a friend of mine wanted to go there. But I think I mainly applied to schools in California because I wanted to remain local at that point. I think it was more of a question of like economics, like moving to another state. It means that I have to find a job or like my partner at the time had to find a job, how much more expensive it's going to be. I was already living like in a rent control apartment in, in Berkeley, which is like gold.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So uh, there was a lot of that. And I think that was mainly the aspect that made me decide to stay in California for law school.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And it is not free to move across the country. So I definitely no, no. can understand, <laughs> understand that decision making. But you start law school. How is that for you?
1: Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I know a lot of people are sort of traumatized by law school and I get it. But I have a great experience because I remember sitting in my law school classes and it was the first time in my mind that I thought, "Oh my god, this is applicable. I'm learning something that's applicable to the real world. This is no more theories and, you know, hypotheticals about something that may or may not happen. This is applicable. Someone could go to jail or or, you know, abortion rights could be decided one way or another. So, I had a great experience. Berkeley is I think it's a very humane law school. I don't know how it is in, in other places. I don't want to be disrespectful with anybody's choice of law school, but I think it's a very humane place for law school. It's not that we're not competitive. It's not that it's not rigorous. It's just that we choose to not let law school define
0: who we are in a way. It's like a good culture. Yeah,
1: it's a good culture.
0: Well, did you know while in law school that immigration law was the focus or was the focus still on that human rights component?
1: It was a lot in the room, human rights component. In immigration law, it's not
0: something that is taught
1: in many law schools.
0: You're exactly right. Yes.
1: Yeah. Especially what I do. And I think it, they, they have an immigration class at Berkeley when I was taking, when I was there, but it was more an, on a, theoretical type of aspects of immigration law, not like the nitty gritty that we do. I was more interested and involved with like human rights. I was part of the human rights clinic at Berkeley. Uh, I think I was like a a senior at the clinic because every semester I would say like, can I stay, can I stay? Because I loved it. And I love Professor Flesher who runs the clinic. And then I did work uh, during one of my summers at at the World Bank, doing anti-corruption work, which I love. I was elated with the experience of like trying to persecute people who, who take funds that are meant for development in third world countries and and, and going after them. So, so that was my fun law school experience. So it was definitely more about human rights. To be honest, I knew that I was in the second year when, when we go through OCI, I knew that I was going to end up at a, at a law firm because I figure that was the place, you know, it made sense in terms of like, you know, paying your loans, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it also made sense in that law firms are probably one of the few places that are willing to teach you.
0: The training. They train you. Yes. When,
1: you, when they train you. When you are new out of law school. So that is something that people overlook a lot of time because there's a lot of myth about law firms and what they are and what they're not, but they do offer very good training when, when you're young and and believe me, law school, it's great, but it doesn't teach you to be an attorney.
0: That's exactly right. And it's interesting because you said you realized, wow, a lot of this is applicable, but it can be applicable and, but still not, like you said, teach you the nitty gritty Mm -hmm. of how to draft that document or how to file whatever you're going to file. So when does Foley and Lardner come onto the scene? I was interviewing for OCI
1: and I don't recall her name, but it's a partner in LA and I think I owe a lot to that lady, which I will find the name. So please, if you're listening to me, don't get upset. But I went to interview and I was interviewing with Folly and Larned. I immediately sort of fell in love because it was such a... It was a laid-back environment, but it was always like I use the word humane to define who Foley is as a law firm, and I think it's a very humane place. And I think I clicked with a partner, and that partner looked at me and said, "Like, "Hmm, I think you will be a good fit for the Miami office." But I, you know, I didn't thought anything about it. I was like, "Okay," and then I think at the Two days after that, I get a phone call from from Sarah Kostelik and she's telling me like, hey, do you want to come from like a callback interview in Miami? And I was like, yes. Do I go right now? I'm on my way. I'm, I'm on, on my, my way. way. right now." <laughs> so that's how I got to be in in Miami. It was a little bit of luck, I guess.
0: That's awesome. And also Sarah Kostelik organized my summer associate program in Chicago. So I probably got the same call at some point because <laughs> <laughs> I was at fully by one hell summer. But you make the leap, you go to Miami. When do you start focusing on your current practice area? How did that happen? It's also happenstance. A
1: lot of my career has been defined just by being probably at the right place at the right moment. I was working in Miami. and I was supposed to be a litigation associate. And I was doing great. And then someone mentioned like, oh, you should go and work with Roy Barquette. We joke around in the Miami office and we say like... There's two sides to the office. One is like the litigation side, and then the other department is the immigration side. I was like, why don't you go to the immigration side and and see if you want to work with Roy? And then I started working with Roy. I really liked him as a partner. I thought that he had, you know, the qualities to be a good mentor. I fell in love with his team, you know, the secretaries, Alicia, Don, Lissette. And I really like the work because I felt probably for the first time in my career that everything that I perceive as a flaw, sometimes, like you know, being from another country, you know, being American, having gone through an Im- imi- you know immigrant experience, was actually a plus and asset.
0: It's a superpower now within your practice area.
1: It is. So I felt like oh. This felt very comfortable, but I didn't thought any of it, you know, anything of it. I, I went ahead and I thought I was going to be a litigation associate, and I was actually very happy with being a, a litigation associate. And then I got a phone call. I think I took my bar exam or I was about to take my bar exam, I don't recall, from my partner, Roy Barquette. And he asked me if I wanted to join his team, his immigration team. And that's how I ended up in the immigration department.
0: I have to reflect on the journey you just shared because I think for most people, and that's why I really do hope we get a number of law students who listen to this podcast, particularly your episode, you think that you have to have it all figured out. You think that at at 18 years old or 24 years old, and you look ahead and you look at people who are doing at least what you think you want to do, and you're like, they probably had it figured out. (laughs) And it's not until you sit and you hear the stories of how one thing led to another. But then, interestingly, in retrospect, it was all those experiences that allowed you to be so fantastic at what you currently do. So, just what was it, maybe 15 minutes ago when you said, Well, now I know why I had to wait that year because this had to be done and this had <laughs> to be done. And there's this, one. right? You, you, but you, and you also now know how people feel when they're even maybe in that situation. So, I just, I never tire of that story. That's literally why I needed to do this podcast, because I never tire of hearing how things just end up working out. It makes me really excited. But you gave us a bit about your practice earlier. Can we dig into that again? Of course. Can you once again, re- I'll have you break it down a bit, just so that it becomes kind of really clear what what your focus is. Okay.
1: Okay. I think the American public, especially during the last four years, when they hear about immigration, they they think about asylum. They think about ICE, taking families apart. They think about deportation. And I mean, it's not that we don't do that. We have done pro bono cases with that type of like, you know, deportation cases, political asylum cases, but it's not the bread and butter of what we do. We do the other side of immigration that the American public does not know or understands. Now, I think now with the latest presidential proclamations, there's a bit of more of awareness of what it means, you know, an H visa or an L visa, or, you know, an F student. So what we do is like we focus on that investment type visas, non-immigrant type visas. Too. We do a little bit of family reunification. So our main clients tend to be multinational corporations. I want to bring their employees to the United States or they want to open a business in the United States. There's also some high net worth individuals that can obviously pay our, our law firm, <laughs> firm fees and they want to set up a business. There's a lot of private, especially in Miami, there's a lot of private wealth that runs part of the uh, you know the economic underbelly of the city in a way uh, you know it's a very latin american very european city so we also cater to to service those individuals who usually want to your open business in the united states
0: i appreciate that explanation because not only does it explain like you said some things that people don't already know but as you know i'm relatively new to the firm so you're also educating me <laughs> which i which i really really appreciate. And I also do think that a lot of people in terms of immigration, the first impression is just, oh my gosh, that mm-hmm. is so complicated. And so it's, I think, interesting to have someone like you who's an expert explain at least what one side of that can look like, the side that we don't talk about as much.
1: No, we don't talk about it. And I think it's very important to talk about it because now seeing, and I don't want to get political and it's not yeah, about no, not at all. We're just yep. talking about, you know, policy that's happening in our country right now. Like, now with everything that's happening lately restricting more and more immigration, we could see that it's very important to pay attention. why these type of employees may or may not take American jobs, Why this type of investment it's important in certain regions of the US. How does it really look like? Facts. And I think there's a lot of, of, there's a lot of that can be learned from my practice area.
0: That's so interesting. I really, once again, I keep saying that I appreciate you for sharing that, but I, I truly do because it's just insight, like you said, that we don't we don't think about very often. We're getting closer to the end of our time together. And I, I mentioned this to you earlier before we jumped on the podcast, but I also want to get a combination of whether it be reflections or mm-hmm. advice. Back to the, if there is that law student listening, and maybe one way to consider it is if you had to give advice to your 17, 18-year-old self. Okay. Who who had a bunch of stuff ahead of her to navigate. <laughs> <laughs> what would your advice be if she, had, say you knew at 17 that law was where you were going to end up, you know, what would you tell her to keep her motivated? I think I would say be patient.
1: It's very hard to be patient when you're young and you want to already know all the answers and, and you tend to think that, you know, the path to success is a straight line. And it's not, it's never a straight line. And I think life will teach you that. So be open, be flexible, because it's also because you have the tendency when you're young to think, you know, the path to success is a straight line. You're very, sometimes you're not very flexible to new opportunities. And because I was, I said yes to many of the new opportunities in my life, I am in the position that that I am right now. So be patient, be open, be flexible work hard, and if you think that you're not working hard enough or that you're working enough to make it, double it. Um, <laughs> that would be my, my advice. And I think it, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. If you're a Cuban girl like me or if you were born in, in the Midwest or from you know a comfortable me- middle-class family or you're African-American, it doesn't matter who you are. There's a lot of strength in your own identity and knowing yourself.
0: My goodness, as a diversity and inclusion professional, you saying there's a lot of strength in your identity just like hit me and directly in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that was perfect. Thank you so much. There's, I don't think there's a better way to end other than just asking if someone would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: Well, they could go to the Folly website. And there's my email and my phone number. I think my email is the best way to contact me, especially right now that we're working from home. And I tend to be very responsive to emails. So, you know, if you are a law student out there or you're just a student or you're just trying to figure out if you want to go to law school or if this profession is for you, just like shoot me an email. I love to talk to you, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever you want, and just like listen to you.
0: Thank you so much, Vitari. I hope people take you up on that offer and thank you for joining me today on the Path in the Practice. No, my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Vitari Rodriguez. I wanted to give you an update, which is that since we recorded this conversation, Vitari has moved in house. I know that I and the rest of the firm wish her nothing but the best, very much consider her to be a friend of the firm, and I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with her. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.